I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone and welcome to Come for Supper. I'm Alexandra Dudley, food writer, cook and cereal dinner party host. So I thought it'd be fun to sit down with people who share that love for food chat about life and learn a little bit more about how they like to serve supper. I speak to chefs, restaurateurs, artists, actors, authors, and pretty much anyone who likes to entertain. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you click subscribe. And if you enjoy it, rate it, review it, share it and tell your friends as it makes all the difference. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is an award-winning food writer, TV presenter, journalist and restaurateur. Her debut cookbook, Cookin' Boots, received glowing reviews in the UK and the USA and was awarded Best Debut Cookbook at the Gourmand World Cookbook Awards. She has travelled all over the world, working on productions with Channel 4 and the BBC and is also owner of London's Giacconi. Welcome, Ravinda Vogel. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. So this is actually the first time we have a kind of gift in the studio. Um, can you talk me through what you brought? Yeah, well, I couldn't come empty-handed. They're like little, um, a cross between an Indian and a Turkish donut. Uh, so not a traditional donut as such. Um, they are made with olive oil and flour, and there's some cardamom, rose water, and um, lemon zest. And they've just been sort of uh, fried and then dipped in a little sugar syrup that's got rose water in it. And they smell absolutely delicious and look beautiful, especially on this gold plate. I think I'm going to have to tell all guests to bring to bring gifts on gold plates now when they when they come <laughs> into the studio to live up to you. So let's go. Let's kind of start with your childhood. So I know you were born in Kenya, but you moved over here when you were quite young. How old yes, were you when you I moved? was um, I was seven. But um, Kenya is, it never leaves you. It's such an incredibly vivid place to grow up, you know, just the kind of wild terrain, playing outdoors. Um, I lived in an extended family, so there was no, never any less than 15 people in the house. And, wow. you know, that could go up to 25, 30 if there were people visiting. And aside from all the kind of chaos from the people, there was always a dog or a cat or a rabbit or a goat or a chicken or an African grey that never stopped talking. So there was no quiet ever. Love it. So what was it that kind of led you into the kitchen then? Um, What led me into the kitchen was my mother, actually, um, actually with a lot of resistance from me. So I was very young. I was about five years old. And I grew up in this very sort of Jane Austen-esque house where we were four sisters and my mother was very Victorian in her attitude and really believed that ladies should know how to cook and sew and housekeep and all of that, very Mrs. Beaton, and um, dragged me kicking and screaming, you know, off my tricycle into (laughs) the kitchen. And she just said, look, you're just going to have to cook. You're going to have to learn. 
And um, I think my first task ever was everything was bought in sort of burlap sacks. You know, it didn't mm-hmm. come in, in little plastic packages. And she just sat me on this uh, red stool in, in the courtyard uh, with a sack of peas. And I think there must have been about easily five, six kilos of wow. fresh peas. And I just had to pod them. And uh, It's a labor of love, that job. It's a real labor of love. And I just remember squealing because every so often there'd be a caterpillar or something. <laughs> and uh, But it was very visual. It was this sort of red plastic bucket with these sort of malachite green peas. And it's a real food memory. Like, mm-hmm. I remember it really, really well. I remember how sweet the peas were. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was my first thing. And I think it wasn't really until my grandfather sort of intervened that I, it took me time to fall in love with cookery. And so he'd got me, um, it was the kind of long rains and you're bored because you can't play outside. And he got me the this little aluminium stove um, that you could actually light up. And I'd make these sort of chapatis that were singed and burned and disgusting. And he would just eat them and say what a wonderful cook I was and how I was better than my mother. And um, it just made me feel that if you cooked for people, they'd just fall in love with you. Yeah, and it- that was it. I was hooked. And then, of course, growing up in a, a terrain, you know, the, the kind of alluvial soil, this red earth in Kenya that produces just the most wonderful produce like I know people talk about Italian tomatoes but you eat a tomato in Kenya you just need a tiny bit of salt they are amazing and when you were surrounded by such fresh produce from animals to actually uh, you know what what grew in the allotment in the garden you can't help but fall in love with Mm. food I think I think what you say about it being kind of an expression of love is so so true and appropriate um, yeah. as well, especially in, in your cooking, I think. And I think uh, for my grandfather, he was incredibly generous. He loved to entertain. So there were lots of dinner parties, uh, lots of people being dragged off the street, you know, just random people who, interesting people who just ended up coming home to eat. And, you know, my mom, her, the kitchen never seemed to close. There was always, you know, something cooking. And, um, and, you know, it was about generosity. It was about sharing. It was wanting to give to someone. And I remember very early on, my grandfather was a practicing Sikh and he believed in this concept called Seva, which is community service. And he said to me very early on, everyone must do Seva, community service. And the easiest way you can do it is simply just by feeding people. Mm-hmm. And that in my sort of six-year-old mind really was like, wow, okay, if there's a way to be good that's really easy, well, that's just to cook for people. And it's fun. And it's fun. And and that was it. And I think, you know, my destiny was, was then... Decided then. Decided, so yeah. So very young, you very kind of young. fell in love with it. Yeah. And then we had the pea induction with the with the podding the peas. <laughs> yeah. So was once you kind of got that taste for it, was opening a restaurant always kind of in the pipeline for you was it something you always dreamed about it was very um very unexpected for me it was a very unorthodox journey to the kitchen you know I'd always cooked I'd always uh been in a kitchen been surrounded by women in in kitchens Mm -hmm. um but it was never really expressed to me that this could be a career choice you know there was this very sort of traditional upbringing where you learned to cook because you were going to feed your husband and your children and 
you know, what it never occurred to me that this could be a career. Because you were a woman? Because I was a woman, because no one in my family, I had no uh, role models who'd done it already. I just had these fantastic cooks, but they just cooked out of some sort of feminine duty, out of some sort of, you know, joining a cult of domesticity, I call it. And I saw woman after woman do that. And it wasn't really until I was growing up and I was in England and I saw people like Mother Jaffrey, Nigella Lawson, mm-hmm. all these incredibly strong female ro- role models yeah. doing something. And I just thought, hang on a minute, this 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 can be more. You can actually get paid to do this. Yeah. You and know? you can do both, I think. There's, and you can do the, both. You can be a mother exactly. and you can have a career Absolutely. and it isn't a split. Absolutely. But I think, you know, sometimes... Uh, when you're a woman, when you're cooking, when you're cooking for duty, it can be a really thankless thing. I think yeah. people can forget that you can get taken taken for granted very, very easily. And I think the fact that you can say, actually, I'm going to channel this into some sort of career is a really, really powerful thing. And, you know, I remember watching Nigella Lawson in 1999 in mm. Nigella Bites and just being yeah, brilliant. completely God. overwhelmed at how fantastic she was. How, you know, she just made me want to run to my kitchen yeah. and have my way with any ingredients that happened yeah. to be languishing in my in my larder. Um, and yeah, and that's kind of, I think that's where the subconscious kicked in. And I subconsciously was cooking, you know, in another fantasy all the while I was, you know, academic and I was studying and I kind of went to university, I did my degree, I studied English. Um, did you, you did that in England as well? Yes. And then I, I went and did a postgrad in journalism and I loved to write. That was what I wanted to do. I was a writer. You were a beauty uh, journalist, a very yes. successful beauty journalist yeah, for a long time. Yeah, but I was working on a, a magazine that was pushing out, you know, uh, an issue a week and I was beginning to feel a little restless and um, a friend of mine who was a stylist who worked on a magazine with me just you know she pestered me to enter this this competition and it ended up being this competition that really literally changed the path of my life um, because I won it is like I think 9,000 women entered I had no wow. expectation what was the competition can you tell us so more about it the was a, it was um, part of the f word with yes. Gordon Ramsay and it was called very cheekily called find me a fanny and uh, he yes. was looking for a new fanny craddock and um, you know I mean it was it was great it was great PR for me I was a complete unknown I had my moment on television and you know this is pre-social media and all of this so I could have easily just faded into you know nothing but I just felt I remember winning and that moment and I remember thinking this is it you know I've come so close to my dream that it's impossible that this will mean nothing and I've dreamt of this for so long to be able to cook and um and and then, you know, when it aired, I remember getting calls from agents saying, you could have a career doing this. And I, I was a journalist, so I was very skeptical. And I, I think I went and saw seven agents and I said no. And then it was <laughs> the eighth agent and there was something about her and the fact that they had a literary side mm-hmm. and I'd been writing my book really for myself, never thinking in a million years I'd get it published. And I showed it to the, uh, the literary agent and... Uh, she just said, this is fantastic, and uh, can you write me a proposal? And within three months, I had a big book deal. It was crazy, and 
And a very successful book as well. Yeah, really successful. I think very kind of, uh, you know, it was a joy to write, but I was writing it about who I was then, which was very much a London girl about Mm. town who, you know, is writing, like having come off the back of working on fashion magazines, it was written for women who love to buy Vogue, but love to eat as well. And um, so it was very much that voice and, you know, still never thinking that I would have a restaurant. I mean, God. And then that came some years later. So I was doing a TV show for Channel 4. And my co-host was uh, Jay Rayner, who's like a mouth on legs, loves to eat. <laughs> Great decision, uh, but brilliant. You know, I, I was kind of this roving reporter who kind of traveled and I was the kind of political reporting on food and where our food comes from, whether we should be buying it, what the political situation is behind the food. And it was a really exciting opportunity. But then every week I'd travel back and I'd be in a studio with him and I'd cook and he really loved my food and he'd say, this is really delicious. You know, you should really think about going and learning the trade of restaurants. And it never occurred to me, but I, in a way, I'm such a good girl. I always listened to the advice of my elders. He'd hate me saying elder, (laughs) uh, but he is. Um, But um, so, yeah, I I did that. I sort of went and did some stages, worked in a few kitchens, cried a lot, couldn't believe the hours. Yeah, it's hard. It's such hard work. I mean, I remember coming off a double shift and feeling like my heartbeat was in Mm. my feet. I mean, my feet just ached. It was really tough. And but I I so enjoyed it. I so enjoyed service, Um, you know, the thrill of doing a really amazing service. It's like you get such a high. The adrenaline is incredible. Um, And then I sort of got on to pop-ups and uh, it was Anna Hansen who asked me to do my first one, which I did. And she was such a fantastic mentor, so brilliant um, in her wisdom and sharing of that. And then someone from Selfridges happened to be at that one. And then they said, why don't you come and do something with Mark Hicks? And, you know, I ended up doing this thing with Mark, who was just brilliant to work with and such a taskmaster, but, you know, rightfully so. And I Mm. remember doing a tasting with, with him and I'd cooked maybe 18 dishes and I thought he'd pick maybe six. And he was like, well, just do all of them. <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure. Um, and, you know, it was like, I, I felt very much like I was on this conveyor belt that I couldn't get off. One thing led to another yeah. and, and private catering. And most of my private catering happened to be for, for chefs. And, you know, and then I think I'd been doing a few and critics had started coming. And... I was doing this one, which was a series of six, and the same critic uh, who'd come to a few came and asked to speak to me, and I went to speak to her, and she said, when are you going to stop being such a coward and just commit to a place of your own? And that was it, the seed. I'd had, I'd had such doubt, and actually rightfully so, because running a pop-up and running a restaurant, two very different things, yeah. as I found out. Um, but... Yeah, I just kind of thought, why, well, why not? You know, I'm lugging my things around. It's sometimes, you know, midnight and I'm on a on a tube with olive oil pouring on me because I'm carrying all this stuff, stuff around. all over the place, yeah. And it felt right. And then it took two years to find a site. I only wanted to open in Marylebone. I didn't want to open anywhere why else. Why there? I mean, it's a beautiful site. It's a beautiful area. It's interesting because yeah. it's outside of that kind of main Soho. Where, yeah. Like, Soho, it seems to be kind of Soho, East London, 
very South London where yeah. there's like a lot of your new openings going on. I felt like Soho uh, for, for for me was terrifying at that point. It felt like very much like a pressure cooker. I just don't think for someone of my experience, I would have been able to handle that many cover turns. Yeah, okay. And, you know, I wanted to be able to pace myself. And also I'd hung out in Marylebone a lot. I really love the idea of community and neighborhood and actually behind the restaurant there is this uh, my husband and I both believe in the idea passionately believe in the idea of positive business and having meaning to what you're doing and serving a community mm-hmm. and actually in its essence a restaurant is is that it it serves a community it restores people you know the the word restaurant comes from to restore and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a place where people could come and have a, a meal that felt transformative, that felt, you know, that transformed how they were feeling. And I just felt Marylebone was the right place for that. I also wanted to be in a neighborhood because I wanted to get to know people. I wanted the same people in over and over again. I wanted to know their names, what their dogs are called, how they like their gin and tonic fix, what their favorite (laughs) seat is, you know, and we've really committed to that. And we are a community restaurant. We're a neighborhood restaurant. We're destination too. But it just gives me such joy. And Marylebone just has such wonderful people. Our guests are so completely wonderful, such characters, such storytellers. The people I've got to know and the stories I've heard, I would not have known otherwise. And it's just a joy. And we have this sort of little black book of people who've been in so many times. And often when I'm putting a dish on the menu, I'll call them up and say, come and taste it with me. Give me your opinion. What do you think? We're having a new wine on the menu. What do you think? And they really care. And it's it's really, really it's like nice. A big family. Yes. It's so a bit nice. like, you know, like Cheers when people walk in and everyone knew each other. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. It's bit like that. Yeah. It's really, really lovely. lovely. Yeah. You've also done um, quite a bit of television, which is must be quite different to very kind of different. the restaurant, um, very, restaurant very business. Very, very different. I mean, um, I, you know... <laughs> I, I don't know, with television, it's it's a difficult one. There's a lot of waiting around on set. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of... Um, it's never as glam as you think it. It's never it? as glam <laughs> as you think it is. Particularly when I was traveling uh, for Channel 4, it was, you know, it was tough. You know, it was six weeks of being in six different countries yeah. with no respite in between. It was just like, go, 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 go. Um, and, you know... Uh, I did this thing with BBC uh, uh, World uh, for India, for the yeah, Middle East and Indian market. 22, it's a 22-part 22 22 series, series, which is really long. How, really how long, long are the episodes? Um, they are about half an hour, 40 minutes. It's half a lot an hour, of filming. Yeah, and a lot. A massive achievement. And you must be, I mean, you must be really proud of that, that that's Yeah, that's it, was, it was tough. It was bonkers. Yeah. You know, it was like ha- never having worked in India to suddenly turn up and things are done so differently over there and I remember we had this wonderful consultant from the BBC uh, from here who came out with us and he was just like this is ludicrous they're mm-hmm. like 75 people on set and wow. you know a light bulb would go and no one would know what to do with it it was really <laughs> funny so that was tough I mean it was really long hours I think people don't know how long uh, sometimes a filming day can be so I get there at seven 
I get on set once they'd all decided what they wanted me to wear and all of this. Yeah. I'd be on set at like 10. We'd film nonstop probably till about three in the morning. God. Because we were filming three episodes in a day. Wow. And there was no back kitchen, no home economist to speak of in, for the first series, in fact. And, um, you know, it was really, really tough. And, you know, you'd need a tin of tomatoes and then you'd stop filming because they'd have to go and get one. It would take someone 25 minutes to get one. Yeah. It was really exhausting, really, really no script or anything, you know, and very specific. And you have to think about the market that you're filming for. Yeah. The because it was, you were filming, it's airing on BBC India, isn't it? So it's it filmed on a channel called TLC. It's um, aired on a, t- a channel called TLC, but it was made for the Indian, Middle Eastern and Asian market. Okay. So it okay. airs all over Asia, the Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia. It's, wow. it's quite incredible. I mean, it's such a massive achievement. Yeah, yeah. Your parents as well must be incredibly proud. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, it was interesting because I, I think the show aired and I hadn't I hadn't been to India for about a year and not really realizing how big this thing was, how many million people live in India as well. Um, and and also they'd been airing it daily and it was and they repeat it all the time. And then they'd done these little clips that would come between adverts and things. So it was a, a big deal. And. I remember being completely blown away because people would stop me and say, are you Ravinda from wow, Ravinda's Kitchen? so cool. So it was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing. Yeah. So you're an incredibly busy woman. Do you do you find much time to entertain? Do you like to kind of entertain at I home? I love entertaining. Yeah? You know, entertaining at home is a completely different, uh, even just cooking at home is very different from cooking at the restaurant. Yeah. There's just something more relaxed about it. Um it's a very different practice. I still love to cook at home, you know, because, yeah, it's very different. And what what should we expect when we come to your house for dinner? Oh, lots of things, different things. It depends. I cook, you know, all over the world. So from, I love Italian food. So mm-hmm. I love cooking Italian food at home. Um, I love making tiramisu. I'm obsessed nice. with tiramisu. Obsessed. I'll have to make you tiramisu. Next time I'll return the favour and I'll bring tiramisu. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. I honestly, the the kind of surefire way into my heart is to (laughs) feed me tiramisu. I especially like it when it's very light, very bubbly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when it kind of slops on your plate, when it's not too set. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember going to this place in in Italy and I think I went there. I was on holiday there for like eight days and I went there six times because it was so good. Um, but I remember asking for a second portion of uh, tiramisu and he just kind of smiled wryly, went into the kitchen and got the whole entire <laughs> pot and just put it on my table. Brilliant. Help yourself, knock yourself out. It was joyous. That's proper Italian generosity, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So those are the kind of things. I love Italian food. I love Middle Eastern food. Of course, I love Indian food. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on my mood. It changes all the time. And, you know, it might be very seasonal. I like, um, we've just discovered this fantastic farmer. My husband did, actually. I shouldn't take credit. 
um, who um, has this uh, pitch um, on um, in the Marylebone Farmers Market. And he's Lebanese and he um, has a biodynamic farm and grows the, the most incredible, incredible produce. And he grows what he would normally have eaten in, in Lebanon. So lots of salad mm-hmm. things, lots of little baby Lebanese cucumbers. Yum, so yummy. Chard. Um, we've had incredible uh, blackberries from him recently. Recently, like lots of really lovely, interesting things. The courgette flowers that have just so come good. In. Mm. Yeah, all of that. Delish. But I like, I mean, when I cook, I like, and I think that especially at the restaurant, we always say that we like to present people with something familiar, but something that has something unexpected or a pop of spice or something interesting. But a lot of the food that we do is about storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I love stories and I love people's stories, but I love the stories behind food. I love the kind of humanity behind food. And um, so we have things like um, we recently did. And, and of course, really cross-cultural because that's what Jacconi is all about. Uh, it's about cooking without borders. So recently we did this um, nudie. Um, which is really lovely. And it's made from paneer, which is an Indian cheese. So we make the cheese fresh and then we make the nudie. We mix it with lots of Parmesan, lots and lots of Parmesan um, and um, and bind it all together and then sort of cover it in semolina, boil it, pan fry it. And then we serve it with sag, which is like an Indian spinach sauce, cavalunero, pine nuts and pickled lemon oh sounds delicious and the story behind that and the reason that we do it there is a sort of method to the madness is because about uh, the turn of the sort of 2000 um there was a great shortage in italy of uh, labor to work on the dairy industry it's long hours poorly paid a lot of work who wants to do it not the Italians, apparently. <laughs> and uh, so they started off this, uh, started up this immigrant program where they were getting North Indian farmers from Punjab, which is my ancestral state, my heritage comes from there, to come and 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 run the dairy farms because they're experts at handling livestock. And so a lot of the cheese that was coming out of uh, Italy was actually being made by Indian farmers. And I found that story so interesting yeah. and compelling and beautiful. So we made this this thing, which was partly Italian inspired, like partly Indian. So it's a love letter to both. Yeah, nice. Yeah, exactly. Really lovely. Um, let's talk a little bit more about um, the fabulous Ciccone. On on your website, and I know that you describe it as serving mixed heritage cooking. Can yeah. you can you talk a little bit more about what that means to you, and then a bit more about the food again? Of course. Um, so at the beginning, um, it was very much about my own mixed heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, so East African, Indian, Persian. Um, you know, my father travelled a lot with his work. There's lots of Asian influences, Iranian influences. Um, so it was all of that, but. Now, I feel like at the beginning, Jaconi was very much me. You know, I was head chefing in the kitchen. I was, you know, it was it was my thing. But now, over time, Jaconi is is, you know, and a restaurant is never a solo journey. It's it's you know, it's 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 made up of many, many people. And it's a family, I really, it's isn't a family. It? Yeah. And at Jaconi, we're a small restaurant. We really are a family. And actually, that family has brought their own fragile magic to Jaconi. And so we have a very mixed 
culture at Jikoni. We have, you know, Portuguese people, Polish people, Italian people, all sorts. So each person brings with them their kind of the inspiration of their own cultural heritage. So I like to really borrow from lots of different influences. So, but there's always a cross, you know, we never will just have one, one culture. And we really believe like, for example, we have uh, something which is uh, called a pronto scotch egg and it's served with banana ketchup. Yeah, I was just going to talk to you about cover. that because it's so brilliant. And I think that's really representative of what we do because actually we're making quite a political statement mm-hmm. and we're saying, you know, I mean, I normally describe it to, to guests as the love child of two perennial favorites, a British scotch egg and a Chinese yeah. prawn toast. And what we're trying to say is that sometimes when you blend borders or you break down cultural borders, it's better. And you actually end up with something that's hopefully better than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And I it's think really that's a beautiful way of saying it as thank well. Thank you. I think that really, rep- that Scotch egg really represents that because it's so popular. So we know mm. we it's know like people a staple love it. dish, isn't yeah, it? We, yeah. People love it. People rave about it. But it it also yeah it also really um symbolizes what we believe in and then you know like recently i had a chef who was polish and one day i said to her let's make pierogi and she was like looking at me like i'd gone crazy <laughs> teach me how to make pierogi so you know we make the dough and everything and she's like okay and you want to stuff it with meat and pork and and i was like no 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 and i'm making paneer and i you know put some spices through the paneer and i start stuffing it and and she's looking at me like, what the hell are you doing to my lovely pierogi? <laughs> and we make it and then we make a, like a um, Turkish inspired hot yogurt sauce. And she's and I'm putting pul biber butter on it. And she says, you know, the Poles and the Turks, they don't get on. And I said, <laughs> well, on this plate, they're going to. And um, and, you know, it's it, that dish is three cultures, Polish, Indian and Turkish yeah. all on one plate. It makes sense because actually when you you look as well at the kind of diaspora and you look at, you know, travel and immigration, there are influences from those places, like especially with my heritage, English, um, Indian, um, Persian, you look at the kind of travel that happened, the kind of spice trade, there were influences going back and forth, you know, and everyone left their mark. And I think that's something so exciting and beautiful. And, you know, I often wonder at people who talk about authenticity, and I think it's such a nosebleedy idea mm. sometimes because what is authenticity? I mean, how my grandmother made Yorkshire puddings would be different from how your grandmother made them. And and I think that's the interesting thing, that authenticity, in fact, is a very subjective thing. And if you think about authenticity where immigrants are concerned there is none because actually immigrant recipes are open-ended they are incomplete stories that are completely adaptable to change and travel so wherever they travel they adapt and that's how I've grown up as an immigrant myself and that's how I've learned to cook is to be able to adapt and I think there's a wonderful thing about how when you're an immigrant and you live amongst other immigrant communities when you know you're growing up how those little mini economies of other immigrant communities influence your cooking because you you may go shopping in a korean supermarket or a chinese supermarket or an indian supermarket or whatever it is and that influences and informs your cook- mm-hmm. cooking 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's really interesting what you say about the word authenticity. I think it's a similar thing with, with the word fusion, especially when it comes to cooking. It has such a bad kind of... It leaves this sort of like bad taste in the mouth. It's yeah. kind of yeah. it's kind of like 80s kind of sourness. And yeah. actually, fusion food is, is what's keeping London alive, what you're serving as fusion yeah. food. We were talking, before this recording, we were talking about a restaurant called Scully, which, again, serves fusion Amazing. food. It's a complete mix of flavours there. Yeah, I just think what he's doing is so completely genius. Yeah. Um, and, and that same thing of saying, you know... Sometimes a question that you have to ask when you're cooking is not what makes it authentic, but what's going to make it taste better. Yeah, what better. makes it good, exactly. And if that means putting, you know, Worcester sauce in your mm-hmm. or your bolognese or, you know, whatever it may be, if it makes it taste good, yeah. then why not? Monica Galetti's a fan of Marmite. She likes to put Marmite in, Marmite in yeah, her. Yeah, I can understand in her, great in Marmite, in Marmite right? Exactly. So we know you travel a lot and I'm sure you have eaten many suppers and many, many dinner parties. Has there been a particular kind of dining experience or even better kind of dinner party that you've been to that has kind of left a lasting impression oh god so many oh you've got I know it's, it's a tough one particular you know I think it's it's those casual meals it's like eating at Trattoria Dardano mm-hmm. in 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 Italy uh just going there so many times because it was so good and it wasn't just about the food it was about the generosity it was just this guy who just literally can't stop feeding you and if you can't make up your mind between two dishes he'll give you two small portions of both mm-hmm. and it's like nothing is too much trouble and I think you know that's that's what restaurants should be about it yeah. should be about taking away the strain of whatever your day is and and transforming your day and just making you have a really really good time and I I, that's what I always remember. It's I crave that place. I crave going back there, not just for the amazing tiramisu, but just for that lovely, that hospitality. Yeah, I think in hospitality as well, the idea of it being being kind of a man's world is definitely an idea that's kind of disintegrating. Definitely. Your kitchen is, is mainly female female well, female led female well, based well it's it's been mixed we've changed right at the beginning we were nearly all women yeah and then it changed and and right now we're like uh two women and three guys so you know not terribly unbalanced i for one i'm just so into the idea of um 
creating uh, kitchens that are friendly and understanding of um, people's situations, particularly mothers, working mothers. I think that it's such a shame that we are losing a huge pool of talent because it's, you know, kitchens and motherhood don't often go hand in hand. And I think we as restaurateurs, as employers, have to create environments where women feel supported Mm -hmm. to come back to kitchens. It's a really lovely way thing to say. Um, have there been many women who have kind of influenced your career? In Massively, food? yes. Um, my mother, definitely. You know, she was this very stern perfectionist uh, when it came to food, but I have never seen anyone cook the way she cooks. And what she relied on and what she taught me and what I've inherited from her is this um, intuition this magical intuition of just knowing, just, you know, using your senses, your smell, your sight, touch, taste, sound, knowing when something is ready for the next ingredient, Mm -hmm. knowing magically how to cook for five people or how to cook for 50, you know, scale, this like amazing instinct. But she just, you know, she was able to you know, just kind of conduct a kitchen in this very powerful way. And yet she was this tiny petite woman, but she just had such command over the people in the kitchen, the ingredients, you know, while things blossomed under her hand and tasted so good. And just this kind of cooking very selflessly for a family, for guests, that, that same need to share food, you know, never keep anything just for herself or just for her immediate family, always sharing the best things. Mm -hmm. And I think that really inspired me. The joy that you give to other people when you cook for them is is a very selfless, very beautiful thing. And what about kind of food writers or kind of other chefs at at the moment? I know you talked a little bit about Nigella already. Yeah, Nigella, of course, you know, I just think she's not only is she a fantastic cook and um, broadcaster, but her writing is just she's a great writer. so yeah. beautiful. Um, you know, I read essays and things by her or when she's written pieces for the New York Times. And I'm just like, she just has such a wonderful turn mm. of phrase. And as a writer, that really inspires me to um, Mother Joffrey. I yeah. met her recently. She came to the restaurant and I'm just completely blown away by her. She really... I mean, she's such an ambassador of Indian food in the UK. I think she was one of the first to really make people understand the regionality of Indian food. And she talks so intelligently, she's so well-informed about food um, and and just so youthful. She's 85 now. I just couldn't believe it when I met her. She's so sprightly, so girlish, so fun, um, and just someone you just get the feeling you could have a really, really good time with. So I always like to kind of finish up on a kind of similar questions and get right into your dinner party. Kind of secrets and tricks. Are there, what, if you could give us three things that you would advise always to have in the pantry or in the fridge or in the larder? Okay, um... So I think really good olive oil mm-hmm. is really transformative because actually if you just have pasta and really good olive oil and maybe some lemon zest or some garlic and chili, 
that even black just, pepper you know even black pepper yeah. that's just really easy but the olive oil has to be good um so really good olive oil um I, I again, Mother Joffrey once uh, called um, dull LSD, life saving dull. <laughs> and I think that's really true because actually it's A, it's cheap, you know, it's a really good source of protein. You can have so many varieties of dal yeah. and there are so many different ways of cooking it and cooking with it for and so many different cultures as well that use lentils in so many interesting ways. So I think if you've got different types of lentils in yeah. your larder, you're sorted. Um, so thanks for that, mother. <laughs> um, and uh, what else? Um, spices. I think spices are completely transformative. And I think often I describe my food as uh, I always say that if I didn't, if my food didn't have spices, it would be like um, elevator music, completely one tone. Mm -hmm. And it's spices that add this kind of symphony and like, you know, interest to it. Make it dynamic. Yeah, exactly. Um, And are you kind of precious about having kind of high quality grade spices? I know that people talk about often when we buy spices in the supermarket, they may be not off, but sort of rancid and kind of yeah. have lost their kind of spark. I mean, I think, I think I try and buy as many whole spices as okay. possible. And I think buy them in small quantities, store them in airtight jars or, you know, where the air isn't going to get to them. But um, I think as, as long as you're, you know, even if you buy them, I'm, I'm not sort of, I don't have snobbery about buying powdered spices Mm -hmm. but just buy small amounts that you can use quickly but otherwise the best thing is always whole spices knowing what to do with them being attuned to them almost like a bloodhound you know really knowing their smell understanding what the difference is between dry roasting them popping them in oil cooking them raw grinding them using them whole the spices take on such a different personality and they'll affect your food so differently. And that takes practice, really getting to know Mm -hmm. your spices, respecting them, knowing when they're burnt. I mean, it's something I bang on at all all the time at Chikoni because I always say, look, I don't care if you burn the spices and you know, throw throw them away because there's nothing worse than acrid burnt spices Mm -hmm. in your food and also nothing worse than undercooked spices too um so it's it really takes practice um learning love your spices attuned to them yeah get to know them well and if you could have any three people to your ultimate dinner party they can be alive or dead who would you have this one changes all the time, but I think um, the people I would have are my grandfather because mm-hmm. I think he he ate in that kind of belt-loosening, brow-mopping way that just Brilliant. gives me such joy when I see people doing that. He just, nothing on the table, you know, was safe from him. <laughs> he loved everything. There wasn't a food that he didn't like. And it was that generosity of sharing that I learned from him. And I would just do anything to go back and give him a hug because he was just such an amazing, amazing man. And I, you know, I just can't even express how much influence he's had on my life and who I've become. Um, So yeah, so my grandfather for sure. Um, Then I love reading. And I, I love, there are certain authors that I just, I, I remember reading this author and reading every single book she'd written and then weeping because I knew she was dead and couldn't write anymore. 
Um, and that author is Jean Rees. She's mm-hmm. one of my favorite authors. She was alive, uh, I think she was born in around 1890 and was alive during that amazing period in Paris in, 20, in the 20s and 30s, the whole Bloomsbury set 20s, going, yeah. going on and all of that, all those incredible writers around like Virginia mm-hmm. Wolf, you know, Woolf and all of this. And just hanging out in that set, although she was quite an outsider. And I think that is actually what makes her interesting. And she wrote um, this fantastic book that I just I just have read so many times. And it's just such a good idea called White Sagasso Sea. And I think I related to her because she was an immigrant. She was from the Dominican Republic and just kind of... I felt alienated and I remember that feeling when I came to this country and so I relate to that but she White Sagasso Sea is where she took the character of Mrs. Rochester in Jane Eyre and she gave her a whole life how did Mm. she get into that attic what happened to her how did she come come to be there and I find that so interesting and it touches on those issues of mental health and how everyone has a Mrs. Rochester living in their head and and I just think it was so forward thinking and so brave to be writing about that at that time. And um, there's a quote by her, which always gets me. Um, and she says something like, it's not the exact quote, but she says something about reading makes immigrants of all of us because it takes us far away from home. Yeah. But more importantly, it gives us a home everywhere. And I just love that. So lovely. You know, I just like, really like people, our neighbors, like I said. So there's a guy called Max Harrison, who's the maitre d', or he's, I don't know what he does exactly. (laughs) Maybe the maitre d', maybe more, at uh, Chilton Firehouse. And he's really good at pouring champagne. And (laughs) brilliant uh, (laughs) skill. Very good skill for a dinner party. Very good skill. And you know what? He's just such great fun. He's the loveliest person. He's been so supportive to our business actually they all have there but um he's just such fun to be around what a great group and what can we expect from you for the rest of 2019 i know that you are kind of quietly working away on another book which is very exciting i am so that should be wrapped up and out uh, early 2020 so i've just finished editing as of yesterday so it's a big job round of applause for you yeah thank you i'm (laughs) like what am i going to do with myself now but i'm sure something will come along so we i think the the next exciting thing is um we are running this series called civilized sunday yes which i read about which is so exciting so exciting um we've already had such brilliant brilliant people we've got another one coming so the, the whole idea behind it was that I feel that uh, you know food shouldn't just be or dinner shouldn't just be about the greed and the gluttony of eating it should be about the conversation mm-hmm. and there are so many people that we admire and we felt that Jaconi itself lends itself really well to that kind of um, celebrating cultural leaders so whether they're uh, a designer, an artist, a poet, a writer, whoever it may be, someone just really interesting to invite them in. And it gives me this opportunity to build an entire menu around that specific person. So it's really personalized. So nice, really intimate. Yeah, really intimate. And then they kind of talk or read from their book or whatever. And we just have a fantastic feast so uh, nice. around them. So we've got Satnam Sangera, who's brilliant, on the 21st of July. And then we closed down for the summer. So, And I'm away. I'm going to New Zealand for the New Zealand Food Festival, what for the fun. Wellington Food Festival in August. Really fun. Very excited. I've never been, so it'll be my first time. 
And then we kind of come back in October with William Dalrymple. So I'm so wow. excited. And yeah. can any, anybody can book that? Anyone can book. Yeah, anyone. Okay. The more the merrier. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure and for coming into mine. the studio And for the donuts, which we're really grateful for. <laughs> where, for anybody who doesn't know or isn't following you on kind of social media at the moment, where can they find you? Um, my, well, my Instagram is at uh, cookingboots mm-hmm. and you can all also find me at Chicconi London. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you liked it, rate it, review it, talk about it, share it, and invite your friends around for supper. This has been a Studio 71 production. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.